Okay, tonight's topic is being or living with dread, understanding what dread is. <laughs> Somehow seemed appropriate. Um, so I'm going to try to explain dread uh, and hopefully ways that will make it understandable. And uh, then we'll have a meditation that will hopefully alleviate any dread that any of us is Starting off just to label some terms, fear is a rather straightforward state where the midbrain detects and reacts to a present threat in the actual environment. So whether it's a bear, a hostile person, a car rolling out of control. Fear is the actual detection, generally first by the midbrain, not by consciousness of a threat. The midbrain uh, actually triggers the release of a bunch of neurotransmitters such as acetylcholine, which focuses your attention, adrenaline, which uh, creates the impulse to do something, to take care of yourself, uh, dopamine, the reward to save your ass. And um, when you have all of these attentional and arousal states going on, what happens is then you survey the environment and your consciousness, the slow circuits, detect what actually is present that activated your midbrain, and it fixates on it, and then it adds maybe some memory about why this thing is dangerous. And that entire experience of midbrain arousal, conscious finding a threat, and then uh, pinning a memory to why it is indeed something we should be wary of, like, oh, bear, I should be scared of bear, bears eat people. Um, that entire uh, experience is what we call fear. Uh, it's very possible to have um, conscious fear without the unconscious activations. Uh, some people don't have working amygdalas, so they don't actually have the underpinnings of fear, but they do have the conscious uh, agitation associated with uh, a threat. Now, anxiety is very different. Anxiety is when there is no actual threat present in the environment, but because of a felt sense of vulnerability, either the vulnerability to uh, we all have to death, or separation from loved ones or social rejection, we have a sense of ongoing vulnerability. And that ongoing vulnerability can sometimes trigger emotional activations. Now, the problem with anxiety is because there is no actual threat present, the conscious mind, when it feels this vulnerability, uh, starts looking around for threats and can't find any. So the anxious mind is just looking around, but there's nothing it detects, but it knows that it feels the emotions of, uh, of underlying fear or vulnerability. So anxiety is the state where the left hemisphere, the conscious cognitive brain, is looking for something to pin its attention to, to explain why we feel so vulnerable. But it can't find anything, so it just remains unsettled. And I'm sure most of us know what free-floating anxiety is. That's the state I'm referring to. Some people also call it angst. Now, dread, interestingly enough, lies somewhere in between fear and anxiety. How much fun does that sound? Uh, dread 
is the anticipation that an unresolved issue that we're aware of could bring about emotional pain. So, for example, you have a biopsy and the doctor says, uh, yeah, we're sending it in to see if it's cancerous. The fact is you don't know whether it's cancerous or not, but you're very well aware that it could turn out pretty badly. That's dread. Another example is your boss says, when you come in on Monday morning, I'd like you to come in first thing to my office. You don't know. It could be he's giving or she's giving you a raise for all we know, or they're saying going to give you a compliment, or it could be pretty bad, right? So that's another example of dread. Dread is, again, when an unresolved issue could turn out very uncomfortably for us, and so we have the anticipation of pain. There is, of course, an event going on tomorrow where there's a 25% statistical possibility of a neo-Nazi being elected for president, and so that could understandably create feelings of dread as well. Likewise, nobody likes to hear their significant other say, I'd like to have a talk with you about something important. These are not some of our favorite words, and they generally often elicitate, or, or elicit, I should say, um, dread. Again, so like fear, there is a sense that out there, there's a recognized possibility of an actual threat. But like anxiety, we don't exactly know really what it is. It's yet to be determined whether these unresolved issues are going to play out uh, poorly or whether they'll turn out well. So, um, in human beings, it turns out that not knowing the state of dread is largely considered to be of all the three possibilities, anxiety, fear, and dread, is considered to be the most unpleasant. Because the human mind does not like the anticipation or the possibility of emotional pain but not being able to figure out what shape or form it will take. There was, interestingly enough, a hilarious study, I think. Most people will not find it hilarious. But um, it was done by Dr. Gill's story of the Imperial College of London in 2013. And I think the title will give it away. Cognitive dread. People would rather get an electric shock then think about going to the dentist. <laughs> That's a classic state of dread. Most people, when they think about having to go to the dentist, there's the possibility that there might be something painful in the outing. So it turns out in the study, they found that when people had to go to the dentist, rather than sitting around and thinking about or being in the state of not knowing, many people actually... <laughs> prefer to administer to themselves electric shocks because people want to get or at least feel that they're processing pain over with rather than sit in the anticipation of not knowing how the pain might be. So dread is actually so uncomfortable to people that they would rather actually experience real pain to a certain degree than being in that state of not knowing. Now, why is that state of not knowing so unpleasant? Well, 
when we don't know the outcome of an event, the cognitive left hemisphere uses up dopamine, acetylcholine, uh, jumping around like anxiety, looking for or trying to figure out what's going to happen. Unlike anxiety, in dread, we have just enough information to keep us cycling through scenarios and catastrophizing beliefs. Oh, um, you know, I might get dumped, I might get fired from my job, we might have a fascist regime in a few months from now. And so then, because there is just enough information, the left hemisphere continues to cycle through visualizing, trying to figure out, yet, interestingly enough, it doesn't have enough information to actually settle on a specific scenario. You follow me? So it knows that something bad might happen. It knows the general arena wherein the bad thing might happen. But at the same time, it still doesn't have enough information to truly paint a preparatory scenario that would help us work through it or at least feel prepared. So what happens is in dread, the mind starts to think, oh, I just had a biopsy. Oh, I just got a message from my boss. Oh, I heard something bad might be happening, but I don't know what it is. We start to try to figure out how that looks so that the, that the emotional brain will feel more safe, more prepared. But then as we do that, we begin to realize that we don't have enough information to feel secure, that our scenario is based on a lot of guessing. And so we start all over again, and that be creates a great, uh, not only what's called cognitive overload in clinical psychology, but it's damned unpleasant. Just enough information to start worrying and try to figure out how what the bad thing will look at, but not enough information to fully flesh out the scenario in any way that feels worthwhile enough to pay attention to. So this uh, tendency to seek or try to at least experience or process some of the pain beforehand is called actualizing pain. Apparently, clinical psychologists such as um, somebody uh, named Wager at the University of Col Colorado and another team at the University of California found that people invariably prefer to actually experience emotional or physical pain than to sit around guessing if there will be pain or not and how that pain will be. So I think you get the idea. Um, in Buddhist practice, uh, 2,500 years ago, the Buddha noted that human beings are set up to experience abaya, fear, due to our constantly fetishizing and seeking control in our lives. We have such a sense of predictability, control, having everything under our you know, grasp, that we tend to live in this false sense of certainty. And the Buddha called clinging to certainty diti upadana, and said that, in fact, the real state of existence, besides this illusion that we have certainties all around us, is in, the, in fact, we are all living in uncertainty. 
and the fact that we don't acknowledge our vulnerability to death, to disappointment, to loss, to separation, to bad news, the fact that we so uh, cling to, focus our attention, expect things to go in a predictable way, makes us especially vulnerable when suddenly we get the possibility of bad news. In other words, we set ourselves up for not knowing how to be with the unresolved. We want to live in lives where we've curated it down to the most uh, finite, uh, specific ways that we remove all of the sense of the unknown, the unresolved, the unpredictable. And so, unfortunately, the world doesn't work that way, nor does the human body work that way. We are all essentially actually living in very conditioned existences that could go wrong at any time. So, uh, a key uh, motif in the Dharma is that rather than sitting around when we uh, experience something that could activate dread, we start to get bad news, we start to hear about a possibility of things going wrong, that rather than go into speculation or scenarios where we try to figure out how badly things can turn out, which in some way alleviates the, the feeling of vulnerability, if we can figure it out, we feel that we'll be prepared. But actually the Buddha suggests that there's an entirely different solution to dread than trying to visualize how the all the different ways things can turn out poorly. Um, first of all, going into rampant internal representations of the world where we catastrophize one bad outcome after another, it's certainly not very pleasant, even if it makes us feel a little bit more prepared. Two, it tends to isolate us from uh, our connections with other people. And three, it tends to remove us from awareness of the underlying emotions that are somewhat activating or creating the mechanisms of, uh, of dread. So a key motif in the Dharma is learning to turn towards what are the somatic feelings that are occurring when we experience dread rather than going up into the head and try to visualize and play out what might happen or turn it into a, uh-oh, it could be like this, oh, no, wait, it could be like that, or no, wait, I, I could hear this, rather than speculate all the possible outcomes, the idea is to investigate and learn how to attend to the underlying emotional activations that are the things that we're most terrified of feeling, which are the just the emotions of vulnerability, the emotions of not knowing. In the Dharma, the Buddha says that the signless states, animito, signless states mean those situations in life where we don't have a clue or a sign how things are going to turn out. He says in the Sala Sutta, it's the most unpleasant state. So he, uh, like cognitive psychologists, acknowledge that not knowing is very unpleasant. 
I'll give you a quote from the Sala Sutta. The Buddha says, without any indication or sign how things will go, we must live with the unknown. This makes life painful, difficult, filled with suffering, and yet life has always been unknown, for we are all mortal. So he's drawing to our attention the fact that we have to get used to being in a state of not knowing. And it's only through getting used to not knowing that we can be with dread without it being something that's so painful. So, the uh, key is to avoid speculation, one, and two, to acknowledge that life is, in its essence, being all the time with the unknown. That actually the times that we experience dread is not unusual. In fact, we never have an idea or any guarantee. The human body lives with 11 separate systems. Everything from the endocrine system to the immune system to the nerve system. And each one of those systems can develop a slight problem that could lead to our death. We are all living in our what we call our bodies are highly complex uh, systems that given the slightest exposure to virus or bacteria also are very vulnerable. Yet we tend to not acknowledge this. We tend to not keep uh, in our daily awareness just how vulnerable we are. And so because of that, when unknown events in life happen that activate dread, we become very, uh, we're unconditioned to know how to alleviate the suffering associated with it. One of the great metaphors in Buddhist lore is the metaphor of a person who's running from the tiger and uh, runs to the edge of a cliff and then jumps off and is just hanging off the edge of the cliff by this very thin vine that is holding them from an abyss below that they can't see. And uh, the idea is if the person crawls back up, they will face being eaten by the tiger. And if they let go, they fall into the abyss. And the Buddha quite charmingly said, that is the status that we live in all the time. <laughs> so we certainly don't like letting go because it means falling into the unknown. And yet, to a certain degree, uh, letting go of our tendencies to try to figure everything out, to try to prepare ourselves by pre-visualizing how things will play out, while that works sometimes when the possibilities are very, very defined, when the unknowns are too great, such as when we're in a new relationship and we haven't heard from our partner in three days after we sent them the last text, and so there's just no information. And of course, then the mind, if depending upon if we have anxious attachment, we will generally jump into the conclusion that that's it, it's done with, and we'll try to figure out why and what they're going to say. 
On the other hand, if we're narcissists, we'll probably believe that we're too good for them anyway. <laughs> or avoidance will probably decide that they didn't need a relationship anyway. But uh, anyway, I digress. So let's get into the actual, I'm going to give you a preliminary um, of uh, what our practice will be, and then I'll launch into leading it. Uh, what we're going to do is we're going to first uh, try to set a settled mind so that we can focus on the practices. So we'll start off with a breath practice. Then I'm going to set aside some time to observe the actual physiological sensations of dread rather than uh, going into the normal strategy of um, trying to figure out what, uh, is, how things will play out. Then I'm going to help us visualize connections that will make us feel prepared and safe no matter what happens in life. And then four, I'm going to end with some reflections that will help us feel less vulnerable in general to unknown events where we don't know how they'll play out, the unresolved. Okay? Sound good? Okay, so find a super comfortable position and uh, actually, do you see there's a, maybe a powers thing there? Maybe we could pull it up so that we can turn off the, the big lights overhead. There we go. Yeah. Is that better? I like that. More intimate in a good way. So, closing the eyes, settling the body into a comfortable, sustainable state, and try not to look like somebody who's uh, trying to be like the Buddha. Just try to be in a body that looks like somebody who's comfortable. So let's start with relaxing the body. Take a nice full in-breath through the nose and lift up, if you'd like, your shoulders like you're trying to touch your ears with your shoulders. Hold them up. And then as you release the breath through the mouth, drop the shoulders like they weigh a ton each and gently pull them back so you open up your chest. That generally creates a body conducive to a relaxed, full breathing. And then for the second in-breath that's deep 
through the nose, pull in the belly really tight, like you're trying to squinch the abdomen really, really taut. Hold it, hold it, hold it. And then breathe out. Soften the belly, no tension. And the third in-breath, squinch the muscles of the face so you make an ugly pinched face and then as well make fists or tighten the toes or squinch the buttocks or any other muscle groups you like, tighten, tighten, tighten. And then relax and soften the muscles in the face. Loosen the jaw. Without forcing anything, have a kind of unforced Mona Lisa type smile, but only if it's doesn't feel inauthentic. And just bring awareness into the body and see if there's anything that you can adjust to make yourself feel more comfortable. There might very well be some clothes you could loosen. There might very well be uh, something you're holding too tight. Maybe you can relax the palms of your hands or the belt or the way your legs are folded. Anything that just feels really kind and compassionate to your state of ease and try to throughout this meditation develop a state of self-care so for the first few minutes we're just going to settle the mind and what I'd like you to do is either find the sensations of the body breathing area of the belly expanding and contraction or the sensations of that expansion and contraction in the chest or the flow of air at the tip of the nose or we might have a sense of the body breathing simply through other body sensations the shoulders lifting and lowering
If you don't like working with the breath, no worries. Just keep in mind a very gentle, repetitive phrase that you repeat with every feeling of the body breathing out, such as, may I feel safe, may I feel peaceful,
So at this point you can drop the breath or meta phrase and bring to mind any theme, image, recent event that you associate with not knowing, feeling vulnerable, a sense of dread, the not knowing about a relationship, the not knowing about one's health, the not knowing about one's financial security, the not knowing about one's uh, sense of security in the world. And rather than, though, fall into the story, just hold something that's emblemic, emblematic of the not knowing, something that normally would activate the mind to try to figure out and solve, but instead of allowing the cognitive resources to try to figure out and play through, instead see if you can bring your awareness into the body and notice what is emotionally activated and speaking to us through the tightness in the stomach, the tightness in the chest, the tightness in the throat, the locked jaw, the tight forehead, the micro-muscles around the eyes feeling contracted, the shallowness, bated breath, the tight muscles in the fists or the squinched toes, all the places where the vulnerable mind, the emotional circuits of the brain, try to speak to us, through the body. At first you might not feel any activations and so see if you can play around with the image or whatever you're using to activate the emotional feelings of insecurity. even add some questions. How does it feel to not know? How does it feel to be vulnerable? How does it feel to be in the dark? But what we're doing is we're training the mind to find the actual emotions that are really what seeks and needs most our attention. Our normal way of trying to alleviate fear by trying to visualize how things might play out actually doesn't alleviate these emotional states of vulnerability as much as simply locating them in our awareness and attending to them. If you locate 
any emotional expressions in the body of tightness, contraction, tension, just in a very gentle voice like speaking to a child that needs love, just assure it that you're there, that you won't push it aside, that you'll take care of it. So the next step, if we were practicing with a state of dread or anxiety, after feeling and connecting and creating a safe space for the 
actual physiological sensations to express themselves without pushing them away. The next step would be to, while allowing those sensations to certainly be part of our awareness, bring to mind someone who you feel safe with, someone who represents unconditional care or love or at least a sense of providing security, somebody that you could turn to. It doesn't have to be even perfect, but somebody that you know you could rely on. And if nobody at all comes to mind, just visualize yourself a version of yourself that is caring, attentive, compassionate. Just hold this reliable figure close to your heart. You might even add a very simple phrase, no matter what happens, I am connected. No matter what happens, there are people that care about me. I am not alone. I am not alone. It's not like those worst times from earlier in my life where I felt alone. I am not alone.
And finally, it's very easy to forget that most of us at one point or another in our lives have actually survived the dreaded, that which we would fear the most. We've survived times without any financial security. We've survived losses of the loved. We've survived separations. We have actually been thrown through difficult experiences and actually managed to come out the other side. And so we are actually far more capable and far less vulnerable than often we imagine. We all have developed over the course of our lives some degree of survival skills that we could call on. So, just visualize a time in your life where you felt completely unprepared, got some bad news out of the blue, or was thrust into a situation where you could have easily felt overwhelmed, and yet you rallied. A time you moved from one city to another, went to a distant educational institution, a time where some source of expected comfort suddenly disappeared and you still are here now taking care of yourself. See if you can bring to mind some image or some experience in your life that suggests that you are far more capable, resourceful, less vulnerable than the emotional mind always tends to believe. You can even conclude this by lifting the shoulders and slightly pulling them back and lifting the head, making your body feel as big as possible. ready to face anything that the world throws at us. Connected, emotionally aware, resilient. 